We are nearing the finish line. Uh, we, we started track season this week. That's a track analogy. Uh, by the way, against some four and five A schools, we finished third at the track meet on Friday. Way to go. We are, we're on the back stretch, uh, of, of the book of Acts. And so if you're a guest today, uh, welcome to, to kind of the, the last leg of this deal. We're, we're going to cover a lot of territory this morning. And so this might be terrifying when I say this to you. We're going to cover three chapters this morning. We are not going to read every verse. I know that we have chicken and beef tacos awaiting us for our missions, uh, luncheon fundraiser. And far more important than like, tacos, we have the dessert auction. And let's be real where that's at. So um, we're, we're going to move super quick this morning. So go ahead and grab your Bible if you would. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's one underneath the seat in front of you. And uh, we're going to ask you to join with us in our uh, tradition where we hold up our Bibles and declare our creed together. So here we go. Let's hold them up and let's say this together. The Bible is the word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind and give me grace to respond. Change me for your glory and my joy. Amen. Please turn to Acts chapter 24. It's page 878 if you're using one of those Bibles from the seat in front of you. Acts chapter 24. We're going to move through 24, 25, and 26 today. You'll see chapter 24 is kind of a shorter story. The reason we're covering so much territory is there's a lot of repetition here that we do not need to reread things that we've already covered. And so if you're uh, just kind of connecting with uh, this book of Acts series, then my challenge to you would be uh, take your time and reread these chapters uh, either this afternoon or one day this week. But we're going to jump in. And actually uh, park for a minute on the very first verse and then speed up. Uh, Chapter 24, verse 1 says, after five days. Five days of what? The Apostle Paul was arrested in Jerusalem. Uh, Eventually things were so out of control and so ridiculous. Poor Claudius Lysias wanted so bad to know what all the, the craziness was about. Um, and so he sent Paul to Caesarea uh, to a guy named uh, Felix, and he hoped he would get some answers there. So after five days, the high priest, Ananias, there's a couple Ananiases in the book of Acts. This is the, the priest, Ananias, came down with some elders and a spokesman. Uh, that word spokesman really is a legal term there. He basically came down with a lawyer, an attorney named Tertullus. And they laid before the governor, that's Felix, their case against Paul. That's the rabbi who is a prisoner. So you could translate this verse, a priest, a rabbi, a lawyer, and a politician walked into a trial. I have been waiting for months to say that joke. I just can't begin to tell you how much delight I have in that. Uh, It's just the Bible. It's what it says. Okay, for real though. Here's what's really interesting to me about Felix. It's so interesting that we need to pause before we cover a lot of territory about Felix. What we know about this guy is that he used to be a slave. and The emperor granted his freedom. The the emperor was friends with his older brother, Marcus. Felix's older brother was named Marcus, and he was highly respected in the Roman courts. And so he went to bat to get his little brother a job. So they gave him a job that no one else would really want, the governor of this region of Judea. 
So he's governing here. He's the former slave who now has been granted his freedom and then ends up getting a job as a governor, thanks to his older brother, Marcus. And here's what's interesting about this slave who became a ruler. He desperately wanted to be happy. He wanted so bad to be happy that he named himself Felix, which literally means happy. You know, you can tell somebody really wants to be happy is when they nickname themselves happy. Like, I think you're just trying a little too hard. The fact is, history tells us he was anything but happy. And the people around him were anything but happy as well. History records that he was a brutal and a a greedy and a filled with lust, miserable human being. There's a Roman historian named Tacitus who said he was a master of cruelty and lust. Wow. The slave became a master of cruelty and lust. And then he said this about him. He exercised the power of a king with the spirit of a slave. He's a miserable guy who was holding on to relationships and to lust and to anything he wanted that he would take to make him happy. And yet he was miserable. Here's why I think that's noteworthy. He also was very familiar with the person and story of Jesus Christ. He is the one who succeeded Pontius Pilate. He had heard all the stories of this man from Nazarene who had become a rabbi and had this huge following and then was crucified. And then the rumors are that he came back to life again. He would have been extremely informed. We actually read later in the text. He was very familiar with the story of Jesus. And yet his life was defined by greed and lust and hopelessness. The reason I think that's noteworthy is that doesn't sound Roman to me. It sounds very American. It is possible to be very familiar with Jesus and not be saved. It is possible to be very familiar with the story of Jesus and not have faith in Jesus. It's possible to be familiar with Jesus and not have been found by Jesus. He knew all kinds of facts. The the reality is he might actually pass the Bible uh, Sunday school quiz better than some of us. Because he was there, he was around it. We can be familiar and still be without hope. Verse number two, he, he gets the, the crowd together and gives the lawyer the floor. And before the attorney starts to speak, I just want to say this. I have some dear friends who are great attorneys. One of them is here today. I can't help it that the text makes attorneys look really slimy and gross. It's just the Bible. I didn't. Because the guy gets up to speak and says, since through you we might enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, blah, blah, blah. Right? Literally, this guy who was the master of brutality and lust. And he's like, you're the best ruler ever. Which kind of sounds like a lot of attorneys. Literally. So in the scriptures, you know, the Apostle Paul was pretty sarcastic. You know that, right? He, like, he was a smart aleck. Like, I can kind of just imagine he's putting on waiters at this point. 
Like you're, you're pouring it thick. If I have to walk through this, I don't want to get the smell on me. Anyways, some of you got that. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. That's just disgusting. And then watch how fast the tone changes. Verse 5. We have found this man a plague. What? We were just so flowery with our compliments with the terrible guy. And he literally calls Paul a plague. Those of us who watch Home Alone every Christmas. Kevin, you're such a disease. He literally looks at the Apostle Paul and says, you're such a disease. And says of him, he's one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. One of the many names for this growing movement of God called Ecclesia was the way and was the sect of the Nazarenes. By the way, still in some parts of the world, the followers of Jesus who are following him at great risk are called followers or members of the sect of the Nazarenes. Finally, the Apostle Paul gets the chance to speak. He's like, these people got nothing on me. I didn't cause any riots. None of this is true, but I'm going to tell you what is true. Skip down to verse 14. This I confess to you that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. And I want you to hear this and hear it with your heart. Having a hope in God, a hope which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. He goes on to talk about they they've not been able. They keep trying me. They keep having trials. Can't find anything wrong with me. Verse 21. Other than this one thing. Other than this one thing. That I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. He said, all of this comes down to the hope of the resurrection. All of this noise is about the hope of the resurrection. And by the way, just like the story my brother shared about the the active in 2023 voodoo witch doctors who are terrified by the message of the gospel, the forces of evil have always been terrified of the hope of the resurrection. He begins to talk about this hope in verse 22. Felix, look at this, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way. It is possible to have the right answers and still be far off. But he put them off saying when Lysias, remember Claudius Lysias, our poor confused friend that we left back in chapter 23. When he comes down, I'll decide your case. And he gave orders to the centurion that he be kept in custody, but have liberty. That none of his friends would be prevented from attending to his needs. Verse 24, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and heard him speak about his faith in Christ Jesus. Another noteworthy moment here, verse 25. 
And he, Paul, reasoned. He's just being reasonable. And I want you to see what he reasoned about three things. Righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Felix was alarmed. That word alarmed in the original language means terrified to the point of shaking. A, a, a physiological response to what he heard. And he said, go away. Go away for the present. And when I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. He, he was terrified of physiological response to what he heard. Three things. Righteousness, self-control, and the coming judgment. And here's, here's what I believe is meant by this story of righteousness. And in case you're new to Christianity or new to the teachings of the Bible, may, maybe that word righteousness, you're like, I don't know, that just sounds like a churchy word. Let me, let me explain it to you. The demand of righteousness of a holy God is that we be right. How right? All the way right. When? All the time. The demand of God is that we be completely righteous. And the reason that that's really bad news and alarming is we aren't. And maybe you would say, but I'm more righteous than my boss. I'm more righteous than my Uncle Fred. I'm more righteous than whoever. Maybe you would think I'm, I'm binge watching true crime on Netflix and I'm more righteous than these serial killers. By the way, the reason I believe that true crime type shows are trending right now in our culture is it makes us feel better about ourselves. The enemy wants us to think, well, I'm not that bad. And the problem with that scale is I can always find somebody like the Apostle Paul. And I'm like, yeah, but he was more together than me. He was more right than me. The wisest person who ever lived, lived said when we compare ourselves amongst ourselves, we are not wise. See, I don't want to compare myself to Ted Bundy or to the Apostle Paul. The fact is I will not stand before either of their thrones one day. I will stand before the righteous judge. My rightness will be in contrast with his. And there's no scenario I can live up to that. Felix hears that that's the standard and he's shaking in his robe. Then he's told that there's this standard for self-control. And I think Felix thinks, well, I'm even worse at that one. He's sitting there with his wife. This is his third marriage, her second marriage. And he's like, I kind of just take whatever I want. That's kind of the opposite of self-control. And the reality is that's my story as well. When I look at myself, self doesn't do a good job controlling self. Which is why we learn in the gospel, and as a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul would be the one who teaches this, that it's the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit that produces a fruit that looks like self-control. It's actually spirit control. And Felix is like, well, I'm over two. What's the third one? Coming judgment. It's like the Apostle Paul said, hey, no disrespect, little judge. But I'm standing before your little throne today. But there is coming a day that we will all stand before the infinitely greater throne. And all of us will give an account before God 
for how righteous we lived and how controlled our self was. That's alarming. Unless there's the hope of the resurrection. Unless there's the hope that God the Father made God the Son to become sin for us. So that in the Son, we might become the righteousness of God. So that in Him, He would place in us His indwelling Holy Spirit, who would bear the fruit of self-control. So that one day, at the coming judgment, when I stand before His throne, I will stand before His throne with profound, supernatural confidence in nothing of my own, but that I am robed in the righteousness of His Son. That's the hope of the resurrection. If Christ is still dead, there's no hope that his righteousness will live for me. If he's still dead, there's no hope that his spirit will live within me. Which means I'll stand before that throne on that day being quite alarmed. But because of the hope of the resurrection, we stand before the throne with confidence. He sends him away. In verse 26, at the same time, he hoped. There's that word again. He hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. Just shows you how off the mark this dude was. Don't know how to tell you, Felix. He broke. He sent for him often and conversed with him. And I just want to say this. I... We can keep having all the conversations we need to have about Jesus, but at some point in time, you're going to have to take a step of faith. Verse 27, when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Festus. Two years in that one sentence. We just sped past two years. Desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. And what happens as we begin chapter 25 is we find out that two years calmed none of the drama. Two years they're still trying to get their teeth in the apostle Paul. And now they start trying to wear out Festus to have an opportunity. Bring him back to Jerusalem. Have another trial. And Festus is like, I don't know what is going on. Now the confusion continues to pass down to another poor politician who's like, what is the deal with this guy? He tells Paul, don't you want to just go back to Jerusalem and be done with all of this? Apostle Paul said, man, none of this is legit and none of this is right. Look at verse 11. If I'm a wrongdoer and I've committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if if there's nothing to the charges against me, no one can give me up to them. Then he says these words, I appeal to Caesar. Those don't seem like big words to us because we are not Roman. Those are really big words. Verse 12, Festus, when he conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, and to Caesar you shall go. Every Roman citizen had the right at any point in time in any kind of judicial proceedings to say, I appeal to Caesar. And they had the, the authority and the right 
to appeal their case before the supreme of the supreme court, Caesar himself. And what happens is, he says, fine, we're going to pay to send you to Rome. Now that's the way to do missions. If we could just get the government to pay for our missionaries. Okay, anyway, sorry. Verse 13, we got to keep moving. Uh, Some days have passed. Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. Festus is in this new position. So this king comes to greet him the way that they they would uh, in the, the tradition of their day. This is King Agrippa II. Some of you remember that we've already had an Agrippa here. Uh, king Agrippa I we met back uh, in, in Acts chapter 12. If you don't remember the story, here's a, a really short uh, uh, version. In the midst of this declaration of the gospel, he walks out in a really sparkly robe and the sun is shining on it and people start worshiping him and then he falls down sick and he dies by being eaten by worms. That was his dad. King Agrippa II was 17 years old when that happened. So yet again, we have another politician who's quite aware of the power of the name of Jesus. He's been exposed to the power of the name of Jesus in this story, and he shows up with his wife. Uh, We're going to skip much of the next details because essentially he just tells, Ephesus just tells King Agrippa what we've already been talking about for all of these weeks together. I only want to bring attention to one thing he says as he's explaining to him this dilemma. Verse 15, I'm sorry, verse 19. He's like, I don't know what's going on, but they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. A guy who is outside the faith understands that this all comes back to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 23, I just find this to be a humorous verse. On the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. That's such a good word. I've never, ever entered a room with great pomp. I just love this. With great pomp. And they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. (laughs) Like, is that not funny? Like, they enter with all this, and then Paul just comes walking out like, "Mm, yeah, you. Okay. And then Festus tells the whole crowd everything he just told King Agrippa, which we've already covered. So we skip down to verse number one of chapter 26. Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. And he says this. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, this whole crowd of people. And he looks him right in the eye. You, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar. You know all too well the power of the name that I'm declaring in this place today. You're familiar the customs and the controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. He begins to talk about who he used to be. And he makes this one statement. And he, he's going to share his testimony again. Luke again records all of Paul's conversion story. This is who I was. I met Jesus. This is who I am now. In the midst of that, Paul says one thing I want to bring your attention to. Verses 6, 7, and 8. 
He says, now I stand here on trial because my hope, my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I'm accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? If he's God, why is this so far-fetched? And then he goes on to tell, yet again, his story. Verse 22, he's now telling who he is in Jesus. And he says, to this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing But what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ, the Messiah, must suffer. And that by being the first to rise from the dead, there it is again, he would proclaim light to both our people and to the Gentiles. And he talks about raising from the dead again. And all of a sudden, the moment gets interrupted. Verse 24, as he's saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are outside your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead sounds like foolishness to those who are far from the faith. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I'm speaking true and rational words. And then I love this. He's going to reference again King Agrippa. The king knows. The king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly. I'm persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. It's not been done in a corner. And then he looks him dead in the eye again. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Before he can answer him, he says, I know that you believe. You could not have stood at your father's funeral and not believe in the power of the name of Jesus. I know you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, like we've been in this this hall for a couple hours, couple minutes. I don't know. It took longer for me to walk in with my pomp than for you to talk. In such a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? One of the first times in Scripture that term is used. And Paul said, dude, whether it takes a long time or a short time, whether it's a minute or a, or a month, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me this day might become just like me, just such as I am. I mean, except for these chains, let's be honest. He stands there and declares with this boldness. And the saddest thing is the chapter ends with them saying, well, he didn't do anything wrong. Send me to Rome And they turn their backs and they leave. I want to make four observations and then we're going to be done from from this story. All of this centers around the hope of the resurrection. Our whole story, our whole mission, our whole message. Listen to me. The hope of the resurrection is the center of our faith. If Christ is not raised from the dead, we are of all people the most to be pitied. If Christ is not raised from the dead, there's no such thing as hope. This all comes back to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
If our Savior defeats death, then what can I possibly face and not have hope? Let me ask that again. If our Savior defeats death, then what can I possibly face and not have hope? If death won't stop him, then my little struggles, my little weaknesses, my little doubts, my little failures, my bad days, or my good days can't possibly stop the death defeater. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the center of our faith. Number two, it's the hope of the resurrection that shines brightest in our deepest need for rescuing grace. It's in those those dark moments that we face the mastery of sin over us, that we are brutal and lustful and full of greed and full of self It's when we're most honest about our brokenness that the bright light of the hope of new life shines brightest. That's what makes the Christian faith unlike any other belief system in the world. Every belief system in the world acknowledges the fact that we're not perfect. It's only in the, the hope of the gospel that we find out there's new life for us broken people. The hope of the resurrection shines brightest. In the hour of our darkest darkness. And if that's true. Then number three. The hope of the resurrection. Must be proclaimed. In all the world. If the hope of the resurrection. Is what this is all about. And it is the thing that shines brightest in the darkness. Then the whole world must hear this Message, And then here's the last thing I would say. The hope of the resurrection demands a response. The hope of the resurrection demands a response. The, the response by these politicians in this story, heartbreakingly, is to reject the hope that's offered in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. But that is a response. It demands a response. We, several months ago, we, back when we were in Acts chapter 16, we talked about Paul and Silas being in Philippi. They were arrested. They're put in this jail. At midnight, they're singing songs and praising God. An earthquake shakes the prison bars open and the doors open off their hinges and the chains fall off of the prisoners and This jailer assumes they've all escaped and he's going to do the honorable thing. He's going to fall on his sword. And Paul cries out, don't do that. We're here. He comes in trembling just like Festus did. Just like Felix did. Sorry, Festus and Felix, they get all mixed up in my head. He comes in shaking the same way. He falls down at their feet. And you remember the question he asked? He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Paul says, believe in Jesus. But here's what this week's texts ask. What must I do to be lost? And the answer is nothing. And sadly, that's exactly what they did. 
If you are on the outside looking in at hope, I'm here to tell you today. Hope is found in the simplicity of placing your faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ on your behalf. And when we experience that hope, it's no longer a, I believe some religious things. I'm familiar with some stories about Jesus of Nazareth. It becomes the consuming central mission of your life. In just a few moments, we're going to sing a song about the greatness of God. And as we sing that song, there's going to be some men and women in the prayer room in the back. And I'm just telling you, if you don't know for sure that you've experienced the saving hope of Jesus Christ, would you please, as we sing, go talk to somebody? Would you please go have a conversation with someone? If you're worshiping online today, you can text PRAYFW to 94000. We'd love to have that conversation because we believe hope is available and His name is Jesus. It demands a response. And if we've, through faith, accepted the hope of the resurrection, then it demands another response. And that is that we're a part of the mission to tell the story in every language, every tribe, every nation, among every people. This whole global missions emphasis is not because we're a part of a pyramid scheme and if we can just grow our brand... We get more points. No, this is because we've experienced a hope that's changed everything for us. And we think everybody needs to know. We so believe that everybody needs to know that we will leverage our resources. We will choose to do the most un-American thing. We will, of a free will, give away money. (laughs) Because we so believe in advancing the message. And advancing the mission. And so right now is a moment that we're asking for all of you who call Temple your church home. We're asking for a response in this moment. We believe the hope of the nations demands a response. If you look at that card in your seat or on the screen, you'll notice that there's a QR code. And what we're asking you to do right now in this moment is we're asking you to scan that QR code. We're hoping that you've been talking about this. We've been reminding you of this for several weeks. But right now is where we're asking in this moment that you would say, this is what we commit to give, either weekly or monthly, depending on how you do your giving, whatever. But we're asking every family in this uh, who call this their church home, would you please scan this QR code right now? Right now in this moment, this is our moment to respond. If you've already done this online, please don't do it again. That'll really mess up our bath. Uh, If you've already done this, please don't do that. If you've already filled out the card, please don't also do the QR code. uh, Because then that also, math. So um, if you're like, no, I don't want to scan the QR code because I don't have a smartphone. Or uh, I don't like doing that because that's how they get you or whatever. uh, You can feel free to fill out the card. And you can drop it in one of the offering boxes as we leave if you're not uh, into doing the digital thing. But um, we're asking right now. That you would say, this is, this is above my tithes, what I'm committing to give for our commitment as a church body to our missionary partners, just like the folks you've been seeing. And here's what I would say. We, we don't currently support the previous two missionaries that you saw. We really want to. For us to be able to take them on as partners, it requires commitment on our part to say, yeah, I'm in. We, we so have tasted of hope. It's so changed my life. I want to help other people hear the same story. 
And so my question today is, what's the response the Holy Spirit is leading you to? With faith in his promises, what would you commit to give for the next 12 months for the sake of the nations? I'm going to say a prayer over this commitment. As I'm praying, the band is going to make their way back to the stage. But this is kind of our prayer of consecration for these commitments for the next 12 months. And so if you're still in the middle of filling that out, keep filling it out. Uh, If you haven't scanned the QR code, we're going to leave it up uh, kind of as, as I'm praying here, as we're getting ready. So you still have time to respond. But for the rest of you, I'm going to ask, would you pray with me? Father, we, we set aside these resources because we believe that there were those who did the same for our sake. There was a generation before us that, that leveraged their resources and sacrificially invested so that the gospel could get to us. And as we've tasted of, of new life, of the hope of the resurrection, we have felt in us a compelling calling to be a part of helping others hear, hear the same story. And so God, as we, as we just simply do our part, what we know is dollars don't change lives. For this to truly bear fruit, for this to truly change villages and change lives and change cities, we know that your spirit must go before and, and must pave the way. And so we don't give hoping you'll celebrate us. We give in celebration of you and in the power of your gospel. We seek to make much of you, not just in the songs that we sing and not just in the prayers that we pray, but through our generosity for the sake of the nations. God, would you please speak to hearts? I pray that your people right now in this moment, through your move from your spirit, would commit for the next year of giving for the sake of the nations. God, would you please move in hearts? And then would you please multiply it for the sake of the kingdom we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stand and sing this hymn together, How Great Thou Art? Let's worship him.